Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. Welcome to Culture Conversations. This week, we are flipping the script. As you can probably tell, I'm not Chris Moran. I'm Justin Coxum, one of the elders at Eternal City Church. This week, we are going to be interviewing Pastor Chris, talking about his background, talking about his upbringing, uh, his life as a hip-hop artist, his life as a graffiti artist, and what it was like to plant a church. I trust you'll be encouraged. I am not Chris Moran. I am not the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I am sometimes referred to as a sociologist, but uh, I don't have a sociology degree, by the way, so I guess that's just by But you do a degree in business. I do, yeah. Degree in business. We learned that on the last podcast. And today, um, as one of the elders at Eternal City Church, Justin Coxum, I'm going to be interviewing our lead elder, our founding elder, our fearless leader, Chris Moran. And I am very excited, as I'm sure you will be as well as we go through the interview. So, welcome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, let's start from the beginning. You were born and raised here mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, in Penn Hills. Mm-hmm. Plum. Plum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Neighbors, neighbors to Penn Hills. I live in Penn Hills now. Okay. Plum, Christian household, mm-hmm. both parents. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me about that. Yeah, How yeah. would you describe the Christian upbringing? So, I lived in... Uh, my <clears throat> first house that I lived in was in like a little secluded four house area mm-hmm. till I was 10 years old. I had like woods all around me and both my parents were Christians. Um, so I, in one sense thought the whole world was Christian and mm-hmm. everybody believed that God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit existed and that mm-hmm. he made everything mm-hmm. including the dinosaurs, which I was very intrigued with as a young little guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so man, my early days were spent in Sunday morning worship gatherings, Sunday school for kids, Sunday night, mm-hmm. you know, prayer and evangelistic meetings, Wednesday night youth group. And then my parents were avid servants in the church. So we'd be there on other nights of the week too, doing various church functions. Uh, my parents were youth leaders when I was very young. So they would have youth over to the house and there'd be youth events. And we'd always be going on trips with the youth. And, uh, and I just thought everybody was yeah. Christian. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I was the the Bible and Jesus stories and Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so mm-hmm. that whole kind of like flavor was my upbringing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any different. Um, I encountered, I would say unbelief when I moved from that little area of Plumborough to another part of Plumborough called Renton. Uh, it's an old mining town. One of the first towns uh, in, in Plumborough and, uh, you know, a lot of my friends were not believers. And mm-hmm. so I was a young evangelist at like 10, 11 years old. So you were 10 when you moved? Yeah, 10 when I moved to a different part of Plum. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I'm not going to blame the environment on mm-hmm. my moving away from Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt that my friends and what they were into and what their families were into influenced me in my going down very dark paths. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I'm probably like 10, 11 years old and I'm over a friend's house and he's like, Hey, come here. You know, he's, he's probably like eight. I'm not, I'm not kidding. He's probably eight years old. And he goes into his dad's downstairs bathroom and he goes up on top of the vent for the heater and he pulls down some porn. It's the first time I ever saw it. And he's like, look at this. And he's like, opening it up. And, uh, and I'd never seen it before. I didn't even know what porn was. Uh, and I'm just like, whoa, 
you know, just intrigued and wondering what this is. I didn't even know. I didn't have a category for it. Hmm. And, uh, and that, so that's kind of like the, the friends that I had. This guy lived three houses down from me. He was one of my best friends, really young. Hmm. Um, and then brother, believe it or not, um, while still going to church and having associations with Christians and, um, I, I began to use all kinds of substances. This was 12, 13? Yeah, maybe, yeah, 10, 11, 12. Okay. And one of the first substances I started using was gasoline, mm. not drinking it, but huffing it. Mm. And, bro, I, I can't explain to you how dangerous that was, but I was so ignorant to the danger. We would literally huff gasoline, so we would, we would steal the gas cans, too, from people's sheds, and, mm-hmm. and we would go into the woods, and, and we would either put our mouths on the tube coming off, and like, you know, you pop the little siphon cap on the mm-hmm. back. You would be huffing this gas so hard, you would hear, you'd be sucking in air from the back, and um, you would begin to, one, lose oxygen, because you're breathing straight up fumes from gasoline. Mm-hmm. So you would start to black out. So things would get fuzzy, like a, like a black and white television. And you'd begin to hear this consistent sound. It would go, whoa, 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 whoa. And you would just black out. Hmm. And when you would get up or come to conscious, you'd be hallucinating very hard. And the only way I've, I've tried to describe it to people is you would, do you know when you have a, a, a deja vu sensation and yep. you're like, I've dreamt this before, or I've been here before. Yep. That's the entire feeling consistently when you wake up off of passing out from gasoline. Hmm. So the way I've described it is you feel like you're seeing the future hmm. and it's, it stays consistent and you're also seeing things you're, you're hallucinating. Hmm. Um, and that, ha- that went on for years and I had no clue what I was doing to my body before I started smoking cigarettes, before I started drinking alcohol, smoking weed, taking acid, any of that stuff. I was huffing gasoline, which is probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done. And I'm probably 11, 12 years old, man. Um, what do you think? Was that just influence of peers? Was that unbelief? Was that just boredom? Man, it's, that's a great question. I think that, I think it was a discovery of, another world mm. which is what we're created for yeah 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 and so in one sense the the underneath longing was i wanted to experience something that was otherworldly and it was man it was it was it blew me away um but but what's interesting is looking at it theologically now i didn't get the sense that it was wrong only in the sense that if i got caught i would get in trouble right but there was no inner conviction that you shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. There was just a desire. Once I did it once and got a taste for it, I just wanted more of it. Yeah. And all my friends were doing it too. And <laughs> looking back, we were so foolish, man. I remember one. This is how foolish we were. We would we would make trails through the woods, and we would make jumps for our pedal bikes. And and I remember one time we built a ramp out of dirt on both sides, mm. and then we we lit fire in the middle of the of the ramp. So we would ride our pedal bikes and jump through fire. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the older brothers coming in and, and looking at what we had created and being like, you idiots. <laughs> and he dug up the ramp and here we didn't even realize it underneath in the, for the base of the jumps, we were using propane tanks. Oh no. <laughs> and some of the guys we knew were huffing propane too. Yeah. So, you know, we, we just, 
okay, this is a nice filler for a ramp. And we just threw a bunch of dirt on top of a propane tank fire just right next to propane tanks with, you know, just had no clue, just yeah. oblivious to the danger. Hmm. And that's kind of a lot of our, my childhood, man, like uh, this is terrible. And who knows what's going to happen to me when I get older. The, I lived right on the border of a mine. Mm-hmm. Renton mine was a, was a mining town. And on the lower level of, of like the, the coal hills, we would ride our bikes back there, pedal bikes, dirt bikes. There was an acid pond and it literally said, beware acid pond. So what did my, my friends and I do? Swim in it. Swim in it. Wow. Like you maybe get it, superpowers one day, bro. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Marvel, <laughs> the male Captain Marvel. Like we you sink in it. Literally your, your, your feet and legs would go into this thick mud, but you know, we didn't care. Just mm-hmm. foolish, foolish. Um, and so anyway, that, and I'm young, man, I'm like 12, 11, 12, mm-hmm. you know, maybe at the oldest 13, but probably not even 13 yet. And I'm, I'm already doing all this craziness. Um, and I think at that time is when I began to walk away from my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly had a strong faith when I was young. I prayed what we would call the sinner's prayer, mm-hmm. a simple God, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, come live in my heart. Mm-hmm. Help me to live for you. A simple prayer like that is, is something that I prayed many, many times mm-hmm. as a young child. Probably the first time I did it, I was maybe four or five. Mm-hmm. But it did not have the regenerating quality that it does for some people. I do believe some people pray that prayer and they're genuinely born again. I was not. Mm-hmm. And I know I was not because the way I was able to go down these paths of darkness and sin... And it was so compelling. Yeah. And as I as I would then go to church, as was my rhythm all growing up, it just seemed more lame mm. and more non-compelling. And I would look at the, you know, it was very traditional uh, environment. So like suits and ties. dressed up. Oh, yeah. And, and like, take your hat off, you know. Right. If I was in the building and I was wearing my ball cap, mm. it'd be, take your hat off, pull your pants up. <laughs> and... Um, So it was just, it became so non-attractive to me and I just went because I had to. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, you meet girls and you start going down sexual morality paths and it it was just, it, the, the way I like to describe it is I went into a room and it was dark and I liked it, but then there was a door in there that I found that opened up to a, a room with more darkness and deeper darkness. And then I found another door in there and you just keep going darker and darker and darker into evil and nothing really other than getting caught. And I think the thought of hell and punishment mm-hmm. were the only things that would, that would kind of scare me. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I did think about Jesus at all, it was simply, I'm going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. So at 10 and 11, you're a little oblivious, ignorant. You could say 13, 14, you're consciously wanting to push more into what you're doing. Oh, yeah. And you're like, I, I don't enjoy church anymore but i like this i i'm you could say your flesh at the time oh no doubt i enjoy this path that i'm going oh, yeah. on, more conscious rebellion oh yeah mm. and and i started uh, i I, be, I found some friends that were good at at stealing and they kind of taught me how to steal mm. so we would we would steal not just stuff from people's houses but i'd go into stores and i would take i remember having this one bubble coat you know, these big puffy yeah, yeah. New Puff York, jerks, New yeah. Jersey yeah. style yeah. bubble coats back in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So maybe 93 or four, um, I, man, I would go into department stores 
uh, like Burlington Coat Factory at the time, yeah. Kaufman's. Yeah. Yeah. And I would load up on $60, $70 bottles of cologne. I had an inside pocket and I would just stuff them in there and they would like surround the whole back of the coat. Mm. I'd walk out of there with hundreds of dollars worth of cologne, shirts, hats. And, and I was stealing any chance that I, I could, mm. everything I could. Mm. And I got caught twice, once stealing clothes from JCPenney's. And another time I was stealing um, boxes of baseball and hockey and football cards from uh, a department store called Hills. Mm. Do you remember Hills? We didn't have Hills. In okay, Missouri. so we had Hills in Penn Hills. Um, now it's a, it's, a, it's a Planet Fitness gym and oh, Penn Hill Shopping Center. But man, I would just, anything I could get my hands on that I wanted, I would steal. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then here's another interesting part that I left out. Um, I was... My mom did a good job at this. While being so irresponsible and foolish, Mm -hmm. there was another side of my life that was entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. and craving money. So my my mom, when I was real little, like she would make candy, right? This is dumb, but she would, she would, dumb example, not dumb that she did it. Uh, She would make melted candy and make molds of like chocolates and we would do this together and then she would have them sold at like my grandmother's bank or mm-hmm. and, and I would make money mm-hmm. and so at a very young age I was taught like look if you put in some work you can make money and so I the whole baseball card thing was because I was going to flea markets at like you know 11 10 or the same time very young mm-hmm. and I would set up tables just like this these eight foot tables two or three of them and I would set so- up Wow. Baseball, hockey, football cards, and comic books. And I, at, at like 12 years old, I was making hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Wow. And at the same time, forging autographs. Yeah. And like, oh, wow. oh yeah, dude. I, I was so good at it. And I don't say this to brag. It's just this is the, the level of darkness. I was so good at it. I could go into card shops. Do you, you remember baseball them. card shops? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. And I could sell my fake autographs to them, and they thought they were real. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I, was, I was very entrepreneurial when I was young. Uh, and so I started selling drugs too. I was like, I can make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, while all the time I started working when I was like 11 or 12 too. So like I, I get these jobs. I remember working at a restaurant at like 11, 12. I was drying silverware and uh, making $2 a waiter, waiter and waitress, mm-hmm. you know, under the table. You're not allowed to work when you're 12 years old. Right. And uh, I remember another job I got recently after that. I might have been 13-ish. And I was I was able to walk around a parking lot with a propane torch. And I was torching in between cracks, getting all the, the organic life out of the cracks. And then I was oh, okay. filling in with with uh, black tar, mm-hmm. paving, you know. So I'm, I'm doing this kind of stuff for money uh, when I was young while stealing baseball cards, reselling them, trading, mm-hmm. stealing cards off friends, my friends stealing cards off me. Like it was just a shady lifestyle, but, yeah. but very entrepreneurial. So that led me to, um, sell, start selling drugs. I was using them and I was like, you know what? I could get more, sell it and smoke for free. That was my initial thoughts. Hmm. And then once you start getting into knowing certain people, you get more, uh, deeper and deeper yeah. and deeper. More and deeper. So. Yep. So after getting ripped off many times and ripping other people off, you know, you just, you're in that whole world of shadiness. Yep. Do you think your parents knew what was going on around 13? Cause you mentioned they saw you were an entrepreneur, but did they know that you were getting into they things knew, that obviously they wouldn't agree They with? knew some of it because yeah. both times I got busted stealing, they had to come and get me. Mm. Um, and so I, I had to 
confess what was going on. Mm-hmm. I remember another time, you know, Pete and I talked about this on a podcast. We used to steal what were called chromies off of people's tires. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. Do you remember those little caps yeah. for your, so we, we would take them off people's pedal bikes and off their rim. And I remember those and we used to steal, remember back in the day they'd have those hoodies with several hoods. You could put the green one up and your black one would stay down. Mm-hmm. Well, they also had these little tassel little things you would clip on and pull off. Well, I would go to department stores and pull all those little tassel things off. And I had a whole drawer full of them. My parents would bust me, like, where'd you get all these? Mm. And I'd be like, well, I took them from all the hoodies at Marshalls. (laughs) Yeah, wherever. (laughs) So they knew, like, I was stealing stuff, but they didn't know the level that I was stealing stuff. You know, they didn't understand the depths. Yeah. Um, And they busted me a few times with cut-up ounces. You know, they, they would go into my drawer, find a pipe. They would find a bag full of bags. Mm-hmm. People at the time, no cell phones. So people would call the house. Yep. I remember neighbor kids foolishly would be like, Hey, you got some stuff. And I know my mom was listening downstairs. Yeah. And I'd be like, you mean, you mean the markers for the school project? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mean that tape you wanted to borrow? Yeah. Yeah. I got it. I'll be up. And so like I would, knowing she was listening downstairs, I'd walk downstairs. I'd be like, Oh, so-and-so markers. wants to yeah. Yeah, borrow yeah. this tape. The time I was listening to the tapes. Right. Um, mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So walk up, give them the tape. Also a little something else, mm-hmm. come back in the house. You're just foolish. You're, just, you're a kid. You don't know what's going on, but yeah, my parents knew man. And so fast track, they, they knew to pray. So they began praying that I would get busted. Mm-hmm. They would catch me with small, you know, little cut up bags. They'd catch my pipes. They'd catch me with, I remember one time, brother, we were on the school bus and, um, this is how this is how not only easy it was back then, but how crazy it was. I would I would go to school, and then in I don't know second third period we would leave and go to a tech school. Mm-hmm. Well, on that bus we would smoke weed the whole way, mm-hmm. and you know the bus driver would just be like, "Put that out," you know. We'd be yeah. smoking, and then I would get to school, and we would either at break, go outside, right outside the door and smoke, or I'd go right into the bathroom, this, this little one stall bathroom. Mm. And I remember one time I had this aqua pipe. It's basically like a, a little pipe like this big old head and a little tube would come out. You fill the bottom with water. And I was in this little bathroom by myself. Just Make hitting. Bubbly sound. Hmm? Makes that bubbly sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm in there and I'm, I'm hitting this pipe all by myself. And I blow out this huge cloud of smoke and the security guard comes walking right into it, right into the cloud. And he starts waving his hand and he, and he knew me. He's like, you're going to get me fired. Mm-hmm. He's like, you got to go outside and do this stuff. Yeah. Right. So he was, he, he was cool with me. Uh, but at the same time, enabling us to just be crazy. So one time I'm on the bus, right. And I think a quarter ounce or, or a couple ounces fell out of my pocket because I would sit like this, you know, with my knees up and your pockets are kind of exposed. Yep. And I remember getting called down to the office and the and the principal being like, this yours? I don't know whose that is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, your wallet was in the same seat. And I was like, well, let me see. And he gave me the wallet. There's like 300 cash in there oh, wow. or something like that. Okay. And he's like, this yours? I'm like, yeah, that's mine, but that's not. <laughs> he's like, where'd you get all this money? I was like, oh, you know, I sell baseball cards, cards or I work or something yep. and, and get this. He, there's nothing he could prove. So he accidentally hands me both of them back. He oh, gives no. me the bag and, and the, the wallet. Money. So I start to put them both away and he's like, ah, ah. he's like, give me that. <laughs> and I didn't get in trouble. 
But that's the kind of that stuff was happening all the time. I'd get pulled over by police, and I'd either have it so well hidden on my body that they couldn't find it, or I would throw it out, and there'd be like, you know, all kind of leaves and debris outside, and they they couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had countless encounters with authorities, either police or principals or teachers or security guards. I never got in trouble, man. Mm Until one day, um, I had got a pound off of off of a guy, and I had cut it up into quarters. I had sold a quarter. I had a quarter stolen off me that night. The next day, I went to school, and uh, and I still had a half pound and a uh, bunch of money. Well, here I didn't know it, but someone in my neighborhood had like I think said that I was their supplier, mm. and it was for them to get out of trouble. Mm. I think it's the only way they could have known. But the narcotics detectives in my town came in my window. My parents weren't home. They broke in, in a sense. They went up into my room, and they just tore it apart, man. Mm-hmm. Like, all the drawers were out, and the mattresses are flipped over, and everything is just out of the room. And they found it all. They found all the pipes, all the money, all the... And they came to get me out of school, and I didn't know this had happened. Mm-hmm. So the same security guard that saved me before... Saved you, yeah. He was like, yo, there's two undercover narcotics detectives in the office. He's like, you got anything now? You got to hide it. I was like, okay. So I went and handed off my stuff to my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I still had like a quarter ounce on me. And I, I was just like, Hey, I've, I've, this has happened many times. I'll be fine. Yeah. Not realizing as soon as I got in the office, man, they cuffed me and they were like, you have the right to remain silent. Wow. Anything you say can will be used against you. I'm like, Oh, so I, I, I'm at the same time, I have these rocks, these like red rocks. And we, at the time, we thought they were opium, but they weren't. And, I, and, and so when I went to court, uh, I went to court for, I think, a half pound money, paraphernalia, mm-hmm. and these red rocks that were all cut up. They turned out to be a non-substance in a lab, oh, no. but everyone was smoking these things, man. Isn't that crazy? Like we're, just, we thought it was opium. Everyone yeah. thought it was opium. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Even the old heads thought it was opium because it tasted just like it. Mm. And you would always smoke it with your weed. So it didn't, it, you know. Right. Who knows why, why we kept doing it. But who knows what it was. That's crazy. And uh, so I didn't get charged with that. But we, I was also selling that at the time. Um, so anyway, I did, I did two weeks in Schumann. I was only 17. I was almost 18. I think it was okay. May, April of, of, of 97. So I was 17, almost 18. And, um, and I started praying again for the first time. And mm. First time in years and years and years. And it was very simple. It was God, get me out of here. Because at this point, you feel the desperation. Yeah, man. I was just like, I'm, I'm stuck. You know, someone would do something crazy on the pod. It was called pods. And you'd have like maybe 20 kids in your pod. And there'd be a couple you know, security guys. And, um, and you'd just be locked in your room for hours and hours and hours. You didn't even do anything. Mm. So it was like, it was very restrictive. Um, every time you went in and out of your pod, you had to get searched. Mm. And then every time you get a visitor, you had to get strip searched in front of, you know, 50 people yes. and a huge security guard. Mm. And, and I had visitors every night. <laughs> so after getting strip searched every night and getting searched every time you leave, you just, you're just like, this is crazy. You know, like the, your freedoms are a hundred percent restricted. Yeah. And so I started to pray and, um, and I forgot to tell you this story. So I get, I get to the Schumann and they put me in a room and they're like, all right, take all your clothes off. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this, with this weed I got on me and these, these red rocks. Mm-hmm. So I tried to eat them. I stuffed the whole bag in my mouth, wow. dude. And I tried to swallow and I started choking and I was like, what do I do? I'm kind of panicking. So I just threw it in my pocket with my jeans on the floor, hoping they wouldn't see it yeah. while they came in. And, and they saw it. Oh, yeah. They yeah. pulled it out. They're like, what's this? Yeah. You know? And I was like, oh. 
Then I went to the bathroom in that same stall, and the toilet flushed so hardcore. I was like, you idiot. You could have just easy. Wasn't thinking. I was panicking. Anyway, uh, I got out after two weeks. Um, I got court-ordered NAAA meetings every day. I had to go to rehab. Nar- and, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, yep. NAAA. Okay. Yep, and, a, and a, like a, it was called Gateway Rehab at the time. I had to do so many hours of rehab. Mm. And I also, I did not have a bracelet, like a, a ankle bracelet, but it was the kind of detention that if they called me and I wasn't at the house, if my PO called and I wasn't at the house, they, they said, you'll get sent to a Braxis house. Mm. So I was like, okay. Did that stop me? No. I went out in the middle of the night and went and partied with my now wife. We uh, would, you know, we'd go into the woods and into the mines and we'd drink all night. And then I'd come back at like, you know, four or 5 a.m. And it's just, I didn't care. You knew when to expect the call during the day. Yeah. They, they never came by at night. Okay. And they didn't call, at least they hadn't so far. Yeah. Um, so I was not regenerate at all mm-hmm. or turned back to Christ because of my praying in Schumann. However, it was an acknowledgement of God. Yeah. So I want to say that there was some kind of acknowledgement. I never stopped believing, man. Like, I, I never stopped believing that Jesus Christ was the Lord of glory mm-hmm. and that he could send people to hell and he was probably going to send me to hell. Mm-hmm. Sounds like at that point, though, you just got tired of the darkness. Like you said, kind of the analogy of getting darker and darker and darker. And to then, some degree. To some extent. Okay. Yeah, to some degree I did. But I also really enjoyed it, man. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't enjoy the consequences yeah. of playing with the darkness, but I enjoyed the darkness. Mm. I enjoyed the music. Like, man, I, I was listening to groups like Triple Six Mafia mm-hmm. and and Twenty Four Deep and or or yeah, I think it was Twenty Four Deep and Gangsta Nip, the whole Rap a Lot crew. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to all those down south guys, I was listening to all the New York stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Mob Deep and Wu Tang and all their affiliates and yep. yep. Jay Z and all, all these all these various affiliates of all these other groups. Um, and so. It, there was definitely an influence there too, mm-hmm. you know. Like I, I would watch Scarface the movie, you know, with mm-hmm. Tony Montana, yep, yep. Al Pacino, and I would, I, I was like, I want to do that. Meanwhile, not realizing what happens to him at the end. I think there's a clear message there where he's laying in his own pool in his mansion, bleeding out, dying, after just sniffing a giant pile of cocaine right. on his desk. Like th- there's a moral message there. Like right. this is what happens. Right. Um, I didn't care. It was just like look at the money and mm-hmm. look at the cars and look at the respect and look at the girls and. And there's a draw. There was a draw there towards the darkness. Mm. And there was a, a, a level of respect to some degree that came with selling and that came with having that kind of power and people calling you and needing stuff. And I couldn't articulate all this at the time. But yeah. now looking back, I could see what the underlying motivations were. At the time, I was just doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was just doing it. Um, getting blown up on my pager. 911, 911. Meanwhile, it's dumb. You know, yeah. this is dumb. Yeah. Um, so the way I actually became regenerate and kind of broke out of all this was um, I was allowed to go to church on this kind of home, home arrest. Yeah, sort of. yeah. It was kind of like house arrest. So there was very limited freedoms. I could go to work. I was working to shop and save at the time. Mm-hmm. I've always had a job, man, since I was 11 or 12. So mm-hmm. I was working. So it's very functional. Yeah. But at the same time, smoking weed at work and mm-hmm. selling at work and like just a weird mixture Mix, yeah. of like responsibility and non clearly non-responsibility. Yeah. 
So, so I was allowed to go back to work. I was working a panel shop and save. You know, I'd go out for carts and I'd be like smoking in the parking lot. On break, I would go around back and me and my buddy would smoke blunts while we're on break. We'd come in stinking. And, and so you probably had to smell. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Visine, you know. Yeah. You, and, uh, and we'd stock and bag and all that. So I was allowed to go back to work and I was allowed to uh, go to church and I was allowed to do my meetings. Mm. Um, but since I wasn't getting tested for alcohol, I just kept drinking, but I did no narcotics because they were P testing. Okay. So like the, the, the smoking and whatever other narcotics just disappeared altogether. Yeah. Yeah. But I kept drinking and I kept drinking pretty yeah. heavily. Well, what, what happened was I think from me going to church and just not so much listening, but I think being influenced in a way that I can't quite articulate. This your parents' church still? Yeah. Yep. Same church, man. Yep. Penn Hills Alliance. Hmm same church that I left from to plant this church. Right. Um, I, I got a job, um, out of shop and save with, with the same company I'm with now mm. doing upholstery. Okay. I was maybe, it was like 98, 99. I was 18, 19 years old, born 1980. And, uh, and, and my boss at the time was listening to these little white tapes in succession. It was by John MacArthur. Mm. And he would pop in these white tapes and we would go on these long trips to Ohio and you know, to state do college, yeah, to yeah. do jobs, yeah. you know, and we'd s- spend a couple nights in Ohio doing a whole Denny's and the whole ride we'd be listening to John MacArthur, but I would, I would go to sleep. It was like, all right, time for me to take a nap and yeah. I'd be out. Well, I remember one time, I don't know where we were going, but it was a long trip. And I remember waking up out of a nap and, and MacArthur's pre-millennial rapture. And he was going through one of his revelation series. And I was like, what is this? What is this? And I remember sitting my seat up, you know, like taking it from slouch position to like, and I just listened. I was like, this is intriguing. He was talking about, you know, women's hair on these scorpion creatures with teeth like lion. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I remember that was a significant moment because after that, I was like, where's those white tapes? Mm. Where's those white tapes? And I would go out on jobs by myself and now I was putting the tapes in. Mm. Was this feeding that desire to experience another world maybe. All, all the way back to when you were huffing gasoline maybe. at 10 years old? Maybe, maybe that was the draw. Maybe that was the intrigue. Yeah. But, but what I, what I got sensitive to was I think God's spirit stirring. Yeah. Right. The drawing of God, like John six forty four. no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws right. him. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see it at the time, but what the other factor that began to like really mess with me is that my wife, Megan, and I were just dating. We had been dating now for four or five years. Mm. And every time we would drink together, we'd get in these blowout fights, man. Like not fists and not physical really, but we would just go at each other. Yeah. And, and it, it was a pattern. So every time we would drink together, we would get in these horrific fights. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're 18, 19 years old. and We've already been together four or five years, and mm-hmm. we were just... We had partied together the whole time, yeah. you know, crazy immorality as far as sexuality goes. I mean, we were just crazy. And, and so we were just at each other's, th- if we weren't drinking, we were perfect together. Mm. But man, as soon as we started drinking together. So I remember one of the last times, and this was actually, I think God's like, all right, you're done. Um, we were at a friend's house, whole house full of people partying, mm-hmm. you know, and I forget what we were drinking, liquor, I don't remember, but. But it happened. We started fighting. At the time, I had a Nissan 240SX, you know, this little Nissan Zoomer. Street car, yeah. Yeah, it was a little, yep. yeah, they would hype these things up and yep. race with them. Yep. Well, 
I, we're, we're fighting in the street and one of the neighbors calls the police and I'm not 21 yet. She's not 21. So we take off running from the police and we jump over this little, I don't know if it's a bridge or something, but there was a, there was a, a concrete barrier and there was all this woods. So we jump into the woods. She doesn't have shoes on. And here we jump in all these thorns. I mean, just a big giant thorn bush. So I'm holding her like this. I have her feet over here in this arm her neck and shoulders over here in this arm and the you know the wall is right at head level mm. and I, I all I see is several police cars with lights on pointing into the woods and and I'm just standing there watching very patiently very quiet I don't even know how long that was yeah. but after no lights and after no police we, we hop out we make our way back to the to the the house we're parting at bro we start fighting again mm. in the street just as loud as before wow right so this is how bad it was and this is how dumb we were I'm ticked. I get in my car and I'm like, you're saying all kind of terrible things to her and I jam it in reverse and I'm like, and I just take off, you know, ticked. And, uh, and I get about a minute away and, and like reality hits me. It was like, you're, you're drunk. Mm. There's police everywhere. What are you doing? And so I prayed, man, it was one of those, it was another prayer. It was another significant prayer. Mm. And I said, God, if you get me home, I'll never drink again. Hmm. This is 18, 17 years it was old. 19. 19. It's 1999. Guess what? Haven't drank since then? Never drank again. Wow. So do you never think again. at that point are you regenerate or are you So here's here's what I think. So I, I was I was already sick of fighting with Megan. Mm-hmm. And I had already in, in fact in that fight, one of the things I said to her was every time we drink together, either you're fighting with me or I'm fighting with you. Either we stop drinking or we stop drinking together because yeah. this can't keep happening. Like yeah. This is, you know, that's one of the things we were fighting about. Yeah. And so I was ready, man. Like I was just sick of the fighting. I was sick of the disruption. I was listening to John MacArthur. You know, all this stuff was in the air. It was in the uh, mix. And I think yeah. God was using all of this. And so once, once I got home, I was like, you know what? I'm already not smoking weed. And I'm okay. Every time I drink, it just goes bad. Mm-hmm. Might as well just quit. Mm. Let's just go all in with Christ. That was kind of the thought process. Mm. So the, I think that night, not that I was born again that night, but it was a conscious decision to renounce my old lifestyle yeah. and to start a new path with Christ. Mm. Like that was in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the night that I think I just at least said goodbye to the old and hello to the new. And and I didn't know if I would keep that promise. Yeah. You know, God obviously enabled me to keep that promise. But in real time, I, w- I said, God, if you get me home, I'll never drink again. Mm. And I remember then, you know, telling Megan, this is what's going on. I'm not drinking anymore. Mm. So I'll go to parties with you. I'll go into, you know, the woods. We would always party in the woods. Right. You know, um, if you're if you're used to the woods growing up as a kid, they're not scary yeah. even at yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> Um, though crazy things do happen in the woods at night. Um, the next conviction laid heavy on me was the sex part, bro. And I, and I remember specifically taking her out to a fast food joint and being like, look, and I laid it out. It's like, this isn't right. I know you're not a Christian. I know you don't believe like I believe. Uh, and yet she grew up in the Catholic church. Very, very, um, non-substance faith yeah you know and and i remember her being like no we're not doing that 
and, and hers was insecurity. She thought I would leave and find someone else. Uh, and so I had to tell her like, look, I'm, I'm the one who's asking you to take this journey with me. Mm-hmm. I still want to be with you, but we can't live this way anymore. Mm-hmm. It's got to stop. Mm-hmm. And we wrestled with that. And, and eventually, um, she became a Christian. Mm-hmm. So what happened was I was, I began visiting uh, a friend who was running a drug ministry and he, you know, heard my story and he was like, you got to tell this story to people. Mm. Like you, you, this is crazy. Like you got to let people know there's other people like you. So he had me almost immediately, you know, I'm like a brand, I think I was born again Mm -hmm. at some point in there. I don't know when it was. I can't tell you the moment where it was like, (gasps) you know, I could breathe. But it happened somewhere in 1999. So from the night when the cops chased you guys to the night to the time when you're telling your story at a drug rehab center, six months, three months, yeah, within the, all in the same year though. Oh yeah, yeah, 1999, 1999, man. Yeah, I get this job. I'm consistently listening to John MacArthur. Mm-hmm. I'm paying attention in church. Yep. I'm convicted over sin. Yeah. Um, at the time, I wouldn't have called it this, but actively repenting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like feeling conviction yeah. over what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and, and being willing to cut off a relationship that I'd been in for five, six years, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, so Megan at, at one of these events, we were at the guy's yard, you know, it was a very small ministry at the time. There's maybe six, seven of us. Mm. She was not a Christian. I remember he prayed before we left God. I pray that if anyone's here that doesn't know, know you they would have good conversations on the way home mm-hmm. and so on the way home we're driving and i said to megan like what did you think of that you know and we had a discussion and at the time i was still very uh influenced by my my history so i was like you you should pray a prayer, pray a prayer. and you should yeah. you should ask jesus to forgive you and you should become born again mm-hmm. and we did it we did that on the way home nice. And, uh, and I think it was real for her that night. If it wasn't that night, it was certainly shortly after because it didn't take long before she was still partying. I would still go to parties with her, but it didn't take long for her to start feeling bad about drinking. Mm. And there was a journey of maybe two or three years where like I wasn't partying at all, but I was still with her and we still had the same friends. Yeah. And she would then drink and then feel bad and she would party and then feel bad. And at the same time, we then began to witness to all our friends. Mm. So we would bring all our old partying friends to these groups, these drug groups. And these are all AANA type. Oh yeah. Or not, or not yet. Yeah. You know, they, they're still just partying like crazy. Yeah. Um, no hard drugs yet. The, the hard drugs, man, I, I praise God. Now looking back, he pulled us out right before all the hard drugs came in. Yeah. Uh, many of my friends who I ran with are dead from overdoses. Mm. They're gone. They're gone, man. Uh, one of my best friends who I met the first day I moved to my little town, mm-hmm. overdosed. Mm. You know, just within the last three years, I, did, I went to his his viewing. Uh, but that's that's the people I was with, man. And and I know that I would have gone down those paths, yeah. no doubt, because of all the friends and what they were using. And what we were headed towards using sure. definitely was, was going to be my story. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. Uh, but by the grace of God, he, he pulled us out at just the right time. Mm. You know, Megan and her friends were just starting to use the hard stuff. You know, the pills and the mm. coke and, the, yeah. you know, um, so many of them began using heroin mm-hmm. and, and now have to do methadone clinics and suboxone. Mm. And it's sad, man. Um, 
anyway, that was that was the lifestyle I knew. You were headed to those bed. were the people I, I was with, and this was normal life to us. Like we didn't really know any other world than that. So by nature, this is the first group of people that you start evangelizing yep. once you get pulled out of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So they would come to these events with us, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now having the theology I have and understanding more of what I know. I, I, I realized how bad some of these events were that we were going to. And I remember one event we went to. I brought a friend. And, and it was one of these, these plays put on by a church where they like show heaven and then they show hell. And there are all these various storylines of people going to heaven and hell. Mm. And at the end, they're, they're doing the altar call thing. And they gave three or four calls. And then they were like, if you brought someone here tonight... And they're not coming forward. You grab them right now and you bring them forward. <laughs> so I grabbed my friend. I brought him. I was like, come on, man, we're going up. And I, and I brought him to the front. And to, like we could force salvation on people. Right, right. Um, but anyway, I, I, was, I was all in, man. Like I was taking people to, you know, I was giving tracks out. I was, I was taking people to events. I was giving them the gospel. I was sharing my story. I was speaking in front of pe- crowds of people sharing my story and what God had done. Megan was a brand new Christian. We were still actively repenting of, mm. of various sins. And um, yeah, bro, it, it was a crazy, crazy first couple years of being a Christian mm-hmm. because it was so intense. It was like, uh, you know, and then 2000, 2001 hit shortly after I was a Christian. And so all these people were like, what's going on? You know, like, 9-11, you're yeah, speaking of 9-11, yeah, man. Yeah, 9-11, 2001. Two, yeah. two years old, a Christian. Mm-hmm all into premillennial theology and the rapture and everyone's like, is this the end? Is this the end? And I was like, I don't know, but you should listen to this. And so like, I would give them stuff. Give them the tape. <laughs> yeah. I was like, in case it is, you should, you know, yeah. you should repent. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, man, like not repenting of the world of hip hop, but trying to find a hip hop that didn't talk about murdering and, you know, killing people. And cause that was the stuff I really enjoyed. So you, you listened to mob deep, to Wu-Tang Clan. Well, that was in a sense the more just drug-related stuff. But, bro, I was listening to, like, Triple Six Mafia and Skinny Pimp and and Gangsta Nip. And and those those influence, the Reckless Clan, these Texas Mm -hmm. guys, they were talking about eating, you know, Brother Lin Chung. They were talking about eating people. And I liked it. Like, I was like, this is is good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember an interview with Triple Six Mafia, and it was Juicy J, where... He, they were like, do you really worship the devil? And they were like, no, nah, we don't worship the devil. They're like, we just thought, what's harder than a gangster? A right. devil. Right. So we started talking in the yeah. realm of devils. Yeah. But they don't realize that they actually are serving Satan. Right. And that they're influencing a ton of people, people. to do the same. Sure. Um, so, you know, I was listening to very dark, dark hip hop. And by that, I don't just mean like glorifying a lifestyle, but actually talking about murdering people and how they buried them and yeah. how they would like you know, dispose of bodies and like, it was, I liked it. It was the stuff I liked. So there was a a very dark path that I was on, not only with drugs, but with what I was watching and listening to and what I enjoyed. So this was the clear marker to me that I was born again was because that kind of stuff. uh, I remember very vividly, man, I was in my car, that Nissan 240SX, mm-hmm. at 212 speakers in the back. I had this like bass knob on my front mm-hmm. and, and, and I was blowing out speakers left and right. Like I would buy a new pair of 12s every, every couple of months. Yeah. And I remember listening to Ghostface Killer. It was Supreme Clientele. And I can't remember the name of the song now. I used to remember it. 
but I'm riding down. It was my favorite song. I was singing it as we went, and then he started talking about beating up a girl. And I was like, wait a minute. He's talking about beating up yeah. women. Yeah. What the heck am I listening to? Yeah. And, and it was like a revelation, man. Like I never heard that before, even though I could sing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it was clear to me that God was opening my eyes. Yeah. Like I, I couldn't see that before. I didn't hear that before. Something happened. So that was probably 2000, 2001, where I, I was like, I can't listen to this stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, so there was this slow progression of, all right, I'm not smoking weed anymore. I'm not drinking anymore. We're not doing the sex crazy thing anymore. Like, I can't listen to and watch the same things I used to listen to and watch. There was this, like, God was slowly, like, literally changing all of my influences and environment. Hmm. So did you immediately jump from, because I know this is in your background, too, the hip-hop you were listening to into the Christian hip-hop world? Was there a time in between? Because you rapped for a while, too. Mm-hmm. Was getting rid of the rap your jumping-off point into getting into the Christian hip-hop world? Yeah, so what? that's a good question. So what happened there was, I remember finding a few artists that were what you would call like conscious hip-hop or mm-hmm. positive hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they called it conscious at the time. The KRS-One was not yep. advocating tons of violence yep. and like, yep. you know, still selling drugs. Um, and I discovered at the time, I was going to art school, so I was going to Pittsburgh Technical Institute mm-hmm. for, for graphic design. And I had linked up with a few graffiti artists at the time too. So this is like 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they started introducing me to like the beat junkies and the visionaries mm-hmm. and a lot of the West Coast hip hop yep. that was not like Ice Cube and yep. Dre yep. and Easy E and like, you know, the, the whole gangster Snoop Dogg and yep. West Coast Connection, all those guys who I enjoyed. These, these were like hip hop guys who liked, you know, writing graffiti on trains and break dancing yep. and yep. more you're like KRS one, four elements on the East Coast mm-hmm. yep. of hip hop. Yep. Yep. I found the West Coast guys. So they weren't they weren't talking crazy. Mm-hmm. They were certainly not Christian, but they weren't talking about eating people either. Yeah, right. You know, um, so so it was like a, I moved into this positive hip hop phase, and all the Christian hip hop at the time, at least to me, was just terrible. I was mm-hmm. like, this stuff is just terrible. And I don't mean to disrespect anybody, yeah. but I, I would listen to it and I would give it a chance, and I'd be like, man, your metaphors are just horrible and. Your, you know, your rhythms. Okay, you're doing multiple syllable rhyme schemes, but but it's so lame, dude. Yeah. Like, and and it started to, for some reason, I couldn't understand why. If we're Christian, can't we do decent, decent music? music? Like, yeah. what what is going on here? Um, then I found, at the time, brother, you got to remember, you know, the internet isn't popular yet. Mm. Year two thousand, yeah, we were using it. But like dial up was still a thing. Slow. Like I, I had be dial on the phone up. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like the, the iPhone didn't appear till 2007. Mm-hmm. So in 2001, most people did not have cable internet. Mm-hmm. It, if if anything, you had satellite internet, which was much faster. But most people still had dial up. Yeah. I had dial up. Yeah. So it was like, you know, yeah. Yeah. and you're you're trying to download a 3.4 megabit song from the internet, and you're literally waiting three hours. Yeah. That's yeah. the world I lived in. Yeah. So I didn't have access to the world of hip hop that now everybody has access to. So I didn't know there was good Christian hip hop stuff right. out there. So I found a website called the sphere of hip hop mm. and they, they were promoting all this underground hip hop. And I was like, who are these, you know, tunnel rats and who is this, uh, okay. uh up rock records. And you know, what, what is this stuff here? 
uh, who's this LMNO character, you know? And, uh, and so I, I began to find uh, this other world of hip hop that also existed on vinyl, you know? So as I started to meet DJs, I found out, oh, you can get this good stuff on vinyl records. And so I bought a record player and mm-hmm. my brother at the time is spinning records and scratching and, you know, we're all writing graffiti at the time uh, in notebooks and in on walls and trains and stuff. Yeah. And I could tell the story in a minute about how God convicted me about the illegal graffiti. <laughs> I didn't start writing graffiti till I was a Christian. And uh, it was all illegal at, at the front end. But uh, so I found that there was an underground, if you will, movement of Christian hip hop that was just was not popular. Yeah. yeah, it was great. And yeah. you couldn't find it in the Christian bookstores at yeah. the time. Um, you had to find it online. So what I then began to do, my entrepreneurialness, I was like, well, I'll contact the record labels and I'll contact the distributors and I'll get them half price at least and then I'll just start reselling them. So I started that. I started buying from the record labels and then as I started to meet artists, I would contact them directly. And I didn't realize it at the time, but when you bought a thousand CDs, at the time CDs were the thing, you got them for about a dollar a piece. So if you were able to sell them to a distributor for $7 a piece, you were making six bucks. Yep. Well, I was buying them for seven a piece mm. and I thought I was getting a great deal because I would double my money. I would, mm. you know, I'd, I'd go to hip hop shows. We'd set up our walls. We'd be painting. We'd be, the DJs would be going, friends would be rapping and, and I would just lay out a table like this and I'd have all the hip hop. All CD. Yep. 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 And people would buy them and, and they thought it was great because like, where's all this hip hop? How did you find all this stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt good because I was getting good music out there that had a gospel message and, and I was also making money. Um, and then uh, since I was writing graffiti, I met a cat who was also a graffiti writer. His name is Eric Erock. And he met a couple other guys who they wanted to form a group. And so I thought I was going to be the, the graffiti writer of the group because mm-hmm. they had a DJ, they had a dancer, he was a pop locker and they had two rappers. So I was like, all right, well, we'll this will be like a four elements kind of movement here and, and I'll be the graffiti writer. Well, at this meeting, this first meeting, uh, my friend was like, oh yeah, he raps too. And I was like, no, 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 I don't rap. I did. I, I freestyled. That's yeah. all I did. I never wrote anything down. I could freestyle for like a half hour straight, man. Mm-hmm. That was like my thing. I would just, when I, I would get drunk and yeah. I would freestyle. Mm-hmm. And so I never stopped that practice. Yes. And, and so like that was, I was like, nah, man, I don't. In fact, I think I said I, I wrote one four bar verse in my life. <laughs> well, they convinced me to write. So I started writing and that's how I kind of jumped into the, to the scene uh, met a guy who was making beats in Virginia. I liked his beats. So he started donating beats and I started um, writing lyrics to the beats. But prior to that, I was in a group with with uh, four guys. Uh, we were all rapping and we were all um, recording as well. Right here, down here in Homewood hmm. was our my buddy's house where the studio was. And so we produced some, you know, some music there and we would do all these shows all over Pittsburgh and we would travel sometimes to Ohio and various places, but we were doing one or two shows a week, Week. you know, and and this show was like three or four songs. Maybe we had a half hour set at the most, but I got practice, you know, so you do this every week and then we would practice every Sunday. And, uh, and so this, this new ministry field was opening up. And as I began to create my own music, you know, I'm, I'm really still evangelistic, Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm using the music as a gospel opportunity. So I would go and do these street events. You know, they'd have like Juneteenth events and the whole neighborhood would be gathered in Swissvale or something or, yep. you know, Wilkinsburg or Homewood. Yep. And, and they would let me have 15 minutes. Nice. This is a public event. Yep. This is not a Christian event. Yep. 
So I'm like, absolutely, I'll take that event. Yep. And so I would do a couple songs, and I would just urge everyone to repent. <laughs> and um, so that was me for several years, man. Uh, I think the last the last album I made was 2010. So we're talking a decade okay. ago. Yep. Uh, and and what happened to transition me from creating hip hop was I was leading several Bible studies a week, mm-hmm. and I I felt the the push to start a church. So that was 2010. Was my last album. I, I created two albums. Recorded, and, pressed, yep. was doing shows, selling, all that stuff. And at that same point, you felt called to plant a church. 2010, yep. Okay. Right after I produced the second album and it came out, and I was like, not touring. It wasn't a tour. It was yeah. just doing tons of shows, yep. setting out that album, you know, selling it, trying to... I was giving a lot of it away, too. Just like, here, 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 take it, take it. Mm-hmm. And um, so making the rounds with that album. You know, the, the way that it works is you come out with a new album... And then you tour the the album, and you do like a, a whole round of sets with your with you got your favorite songs, you got your rehearsed songs, and then you you tour that album. It yeah. wasn't a tour because it was more local, but yeah. that's what I was doing. At the same time, I was doing all these weekly Bible studies, mm. and they were evangelistic. Mm. So those same types of people, you know, old drug friends, new friends, very young people, you know, twenty five and under. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were coming and listening to the Bible being taught by this young rapper, you know, this young graffiti writing rapper. And and I discovered um, Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler and Acts 29 around the same time. Hmm. So with the church environment you grew up in, Penn Hills Alliance, Christian Missionary Alliance, mm-hmm. this is the first time now you're getting exposed to more, we could say, reformed theology. Would that be accurate? Semi. So, but you were on John MacArthur before that. Yeah. Right? See, that's the thing. I didn't yeah. understand the distinctives. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, believe it or not, was was a Reformed theologian, and I didn't know it. Mm. You know, I had no idea. On his bookshelf, you got R.C. Sproul, yeah. and you got you know all all this good Reformed stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. All, you know, it, it, you had the John MacArthur stuff, and John MacArthur's definitely a five-point Calvinist and yep. reformed, even though he wouldn't be in the Westminster sure. camp. Yeah. Sproul would be. And and so I, I didn't realize it, but when I began to understand who these guys were, I'd just go down and, and shop my dad's bookshelf. Mm-hmm. You know? So my dad the whole time was was not only biblical, but he was he was teaching as well. My dad's a teacher. He yep. teaches still so every cool. week. Yep. And uh, you know, he had all this good stuff that I didn't know about. Hmm. And I was, there was a steady diet of like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, um, John Piper, John Piper. Well, so Piper, I got introduced to Piper through Timothy Brendel, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Lamp Mode Records. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what happened was we were, this is prior to me joining that first group, 2003, Timothy Brendel came out with the great awakening. Mm -hmm. And this also ties to how I met Eddie. Uh, there was one Christian bookstore in Monroeville that I would frequent for books and, you know, you'd look through the music, but all you'd find is like T-Bone and like, yeah. you know, just stuff that was not the, the stuff I was used to. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, my mom calls me and at the time I was pressing shirts too. So I, uh, the entrepreneurialness worked mm-hmm. its way out and I was selling CDs. I'd always have a trunk full of CDs. Mm-hmm. I had like a Tupperware bin. It was just loaded with three or four of the latest CDs. That was the good stuff. And then I started pressing shirts too. 
Um, so I, I go to the Christian bookstore and my mom's like, hey, they're rapping at the Christian bookstore. Hmm. I'm like, they're rapping at the Christian bookstore. I go in and it's Eddie Jones and, uh, and two other brothers. You remember Dana, the, the gentleman you met? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he was the DJ and okay. he's got his turntable set up. They got poles and speakers and Eddie's kind of kicking it in the background and, and Kareem was the rapper. And so Kareem's rapping and they're promoting Pittsburgh Shine. It's a, sh- a show that's coming in several months hmm. and the headliner's Timothy Brendel. Hmm. I had no idea who Timothy Brendel was. So that I'm like, yo, I rap. I'm a Christian, and and it was just freestyling. So they're like, you want to rap? I was like, right now. They're like, yeah. So I just I went on for like I don't know, ten minutes or yeah. something, and I just I was like, they're, they're, I didn't know there was a scene in Pittsburgh, and they're like, oh yeah. And so they gave me the flyer, and I show up at this Pittsburgh Shine event, and and there's all these rappers. I mean, so many Pittsburgh rappers. I, I had no clue there was a scene, and Tim gets on. Have you ever seen Tim live? So he's this skinny squirrel hill kid um at the time living in philly and he's got glasses and he's got a backpack on and and he gets on stage and there's maybe 200 people in this place and everyone's kind of looking at him like who is this dude and he he starts off with an acapella and his acapella was so forceful that literally the front row started taking steps back it was crazy dude so like there there was a presence to his set hmm. that everyone felt hmm. everyone was like you know backing up and uh and so afterward i went up and talked to him and i talked to to his dj hmm. dj essence who owned lamp mode at the time this was their first and only album so they were a very young label and i made friends with them i gave him some t-shirts and he 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 used to be a graffiti writer too so he was writing in my book and i was hmm. you know just exchanging stories and and so i was like hey man i'll buy you know, 20 of these albums off you. So I, we, then we started exchanging and I was, I became really good friends with Josh and he was the owner of Lamp Mode. So that whole, those whole first couple years of yeah. Lamp Mode, I was friends and I was, I'd go to Philly and hang with them. I remember Shylin when he first came out with Solus Christus, he was wearing one of our shirts when he came out and I was just like, you know, <laughs> it, it felt so good that the Shylin was wearing one of our shirts. And, um, so that, that was kind of the scene, man. And uh, so Tim had Piper on his album. And I'm like, who is this dude? You know? So that's how I found out about Piper. Piper. Okay. And once I found out about Piper, I started listening to the Desiring God conferences. Mm-hmm. 2006, they had a conference called uh, The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. Mm-hmm. And, and there was many speakers, but two of the speakers there were Tim Keller and Mark Driscoll. Same conference. Never heard of these guys before. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't so impressed with Tim Keller because he wasn't very articulate to me. Mm. Um, in fact, I was just like, eh, he's all right. Yeah. But Mark Driscoll, the way he used culture and yeah. the way he told stories about what was happening in Seattle, I was like, who is this guy? So I started Googling. And through him, I found out about Acts 29. Gotcha. And, and so I started listening to Acts 29 conferences because they were reaching the people that I was also reaching. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's a whole stream of Christianity that is reaching a really broken space in society. These are my people. Like, so I, I, I gravitated towards them. Um, and when you say types of people, uh, addicts, people coming out of the party scene, yep. hip hop culture, hip hop culture, people so, that are not traditional church goers. Yep. So at the time, um, Eric Mason, uh, Lin was a part of, Epiphany Fellowship, mm-hmm. the ambassador, Deuce from Cross Movement, was mm-hmm. an elder there. The Truth, the rapper, was a mm-hmm. part of 
of he was an elder there at so I was at I was at Epiphany all the time. Mm. I've rapped on that stage with uh, with Tim's brother Steve. Mm. Um, you know, so we were I was making so many trips to Philly. It was like my second home. Yeah. And these were my people. And um they were reaching. So I would go to church and I'd be like everyone looks like me here. Like it was crazy. Yeah. Hip hop culture. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And and there was a uh, there was a tight there, there's been a breakup of the unity, but in those early days of reformed Christian hip hop, it was so unified that there was no tension, man. Like everyone was, was showing love to each other. Um, like I remember at epiphany, you had Stephen the Levite, who was one of Lamp Mode's artists. Mm-hmm. You had Shylin and you had uh, Jay, no, Jay saw was more down South. You had a lot of the Lamp Mode guys yeah, yeah. and guys who were friends of mine. At Epiphany, yeah. and then you had Ambassador Deuce, and you had the Truth as elders there, and with Eric, yeah. and so it was like this is this is this is where Christianity's going. Mm-hmm. Like this is it. Mm-hmm. So I got a I got in a sense got a vision for what could be. It was mm-hmm. like you can do church. You remember I came from suits, yeah, and like take your hat off, yeah, man. Yeah. Like you can't wear that. And these guys are wearing hats during worship, and, and there, there could be argument there whether that's right or wrong, but. It was just another world to me, right. man. I was like, this is this is different. I didn't know church could be like this. And those are the people you wanted to reach. Yeah. Because that was your they were, That was yeah. who I was reaching. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. so I was doing Bible studies for graffiti writers who were not Christian. And the way, what I would do is I'd be like, look, we'll supply the paint. We have a legal wall. It's huge. You paint, but then you got to come to Bible study. Mm. <laughs> so so our, those early days, they called it the graffiti writer Bible study, mm-hmm. you know, and, and here I am with these graffiti writers and I'm trying to witness and any opportunity to witness, whether yeah. it's hip hop or graffiti or, you know, I would get into conversations with anybody mm-hmm. uh, about the gospel. Didn't matter who you were. And, and, you know, I was, I was, didn't realize it, but I was really gravitating towards apologetics at that time mm-hmm. and really gravitating towards like RZIM. I was teaching RZIM stuff. Robbie Zacharias. Yep. RZIM, yeah. Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't so much intellectual as it was, I want people to encounter Christ. Yeah. My life has been radically changed. And so from experience, I knew this could happen to other people. Mm-hmm. And I was utterly confident that it would happen mm-hmm. to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyway, back to Acts 29, I, I, I saw a vision for what could be. And I saw this group of pastors doing something that I didn't see in other circles. Not only were they espousing the theology that I saw as biblical, but culturally they looked like me and they sounded like me. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? It does. Yeah. Contextual. Yeah, it's very contextual. In fact, contextualization became one of the dividing elements, sadly, between your traditional reformed folks and and the hip-hop community. You know, so there was this, all these fractures started happening. Mm-hmm. But in those early days, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, a lot of those divisions were not there. Yeah. Uh, the only divisions that existed in the hip hop world was like, okay, some guys like, um, you know, the Tunnel Rats and um, Stro the 89th Key, and I can't remember the group's name, the percussions at the time. These guys were doing more positive. They yeah. weren't speaking the gospel in every song. Yeah. And you had guys like um, uh, Jay Silas and, and Cross Movement who were like kind of starting to war 
with this other yeah. element of Christian hip hop that yep. were more positive, yep. but they weren't speaking the gospel and expositing scripture in yep. songs. Yep. Like I heard Mark Dever interview Shy one time and he was like, man, your, your atonement album. He was like, they're like three minute sermons. Yeah. There's so much theology packed into one song yep. that it's almost like a sermon jammed into three minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that that's I was yeah. really enjoyed that. Yeah. But I also really enjoyed the well crafted quality boom bap, yeah. hip hop that was being produced by the positive quote yeah. unquote Christian guys mm-hmm. who weren't giving the gospel in every song. There wasn't a clear message of repentance in every song, but it was good music. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, I'm both and I'm not either or here. Yeah. Like I, and so on my table, if you'd come to a show, you would see both camps okay. on Got my it. table. Yeah. Um, became friends with Braille, you know, you know Braille yeah. from, yeah. Uh, from Portland, right? Yeah. yeah. At the time he was, just starting hip hop as music, which was a label. And at the time he was just coming out of like that positive realm and he was starting to become more Christian. Mm -hmm. This was far way before beautiful eulogy happened. And now he's very theologically, he's a pastor now, but at the time uh, he was just grinding it out doing hip hop. So he came and did several shows with us here. Um, was semi friend, you know, I wouldn't call him and talk to him regularly. But uh, but he was transitioning. It was interesting that yeah. like he was kind of like a a, a bridge between the two. Like he yeah. was in this positive yeah. camp, and then he started to become more, more theologically driven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now yeah. he's very very theologically driven. Yeah. Anyway, um, I I started to talk to my wife about starting a church. Two thousand ten. Ish. Yep. Did you so, have Eddie in the fold from the beginning, or was that so Eddie and I? What happened with Eddie and I was. We kept seeing each other at these hip hop shows. Mm-hmm. Like Eddie was really into the scene, and so I'd be like, "Hey, what's up, man?" Hey, what's up? and we would we would talk, and then we exchanged numbers, and he would buy CDs off me. Mm-hmm. Funny story, dude, right here in Wilkinsburg. So Eddie lives right down the street down the here street. on South. Yep, Eddie Jones, our other elder. Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, and so he's like, "Hey, you got anything new?" Sounds like drugs, right? Yeah. And and I was like, "Yeah, man, I'll bring my stuff over." So I, I bring the bin over and I go into his living room and I, you know, and he starts flipping through stuff. He buys a couple CDs and I head out. I get pulled over by two undercovers, mm. just a block away. And they're like, "Hey, what are you doing here in Wilkinsburg?" And I'm like, "I was just at my friend, my friend's house." And they're like, "What's his name?" I was like, Eddie Jones. They're like, yeah, right, Eddie Jones. I'm like, yeah, right. his name's Eddie generic, Jones. Yeah, yeah. His na- really, his name's Eddie Jones. And they're like, get out of the car. I was like, all right. And, and keep in mind, I've had so many encounters with the police with illegal stuff on me. Yep. It kept happening, I guess maybe because of my, I don't know, my look or my, I wasn't speeding. I didn't do anything wrong. You could say I was being profiled because I was a white guy in, mm-hmm. in Wilkinsburg, yep. perhaps. Yeah. But at the time, I, I did not have an opposition. In fact, I was so overjoyed to not having done anything wrong that I was like, they were like, we want to search the car. I was like, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Because you so, haven't drank or smoked in 10 years. No, it's been a long time, man. Yeah, so and and, and yeah. so I had nothing to fear yeah. and everything to gain. And I was going to witness to these guys, and I did. So I'll tell you the story. So I, I um, two undercovers. I, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Eddie Jones. Yeah, right. What were you doing at Eddie's house? I was selling them CDs. CDs? Yeah, Christian CDs. And so I, I was able to share how God changed my life. Mm-hmm. I, I gave him the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what do you care if we search your car? I was like, go for it. So the other guy, while I sat and talked, he went all through my car and found the bin of CDs. CDs. Everything checked out yeah. to a T. Yeah. Eddie drives past in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie's looking out the window with wide eyes. And as he turns the corner, he calls my phone. So my phone's out on the trunk 
And the guy's like, who is that? I'm like, it's Eddie Jones. He's like, what? I was, I was like, he's like, answer it. I'm like, here, dude. So the cop starts, starts talking to Eddie. Yeah. Everything checks out 100%. Yeah. And he's like, all right, you're free to go. There you go. But I did witness to him. Yeah. I got to share the gospel. Yeah. I got to tell about how God changed my life. I yeah. got to tell about how I was arrested. Yeah. That was just the way I was. I remember one time we were we had a legal wall up at uh, the Penn Hills Church. So gracious to us, man. They were like, all right, you don't want to do it illegally? We'll give you this whole building. So we had a wall, a wall, a back wall, another back wall, and a side wall. I mean, there were so many walls, you could paint something new every day, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't run out of walls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a constable came up looking for someone at the time. And, um, and I remember like the constable coming up and, and asking questions and I was like, I was arrested by, by one of you guys before. And I just I shared the gospel. It was just my way of like, I was just so eager to share the gospel. Any opportunity I got, I would, yeah. it didn't matter who it was. I would find a way in Give it to him. and I would share it. Nice. So that expressed itself through hip hop. But here's what happened, Justin. I, after sharing the gospel so many times, I, I, I didn't see much fruit. Mm. The only time I did see fruit was from these consistent Bible studies. Bible studies, yeah. Week Believe time. it or not. Yeah. It was like meeting with the same people week in, week out, mm-hmm. answering their questions. You know, in a sense, pastoring. I didn't see it at the time. Mm-hmm. That's where I saw fruit. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, one of the first outreaches that I risked, like uh, as, a, as, a, as a Christian that's not true. It wasn't one of the first. It was one of the more riskier ones. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, hey, we're going to go through this Vintage Jesus series by Mark Driscoll. Mm-hmm. And uh, who wants to host it? And this kid was like, I'll have it at my house. First night I walk in, bro. Liquor bottles all over the walls, yeah. pornography on the walls yeah. in the kitchen, and like pipes everywhere, these giant hookah pipes. You know what they are? They have like yeah. hoses coming yeah. off. Yeah. and yeah. you. And, and I remember being like, Ooh, here we go. Okay. So like, you know, friends come, we throw in Mark Driscoll on the big screen and, and we were talking about Christ and the gospel. And I kid you not after a couple months of doing this, like the porn came off the wall, the decorations changed. This kid started thinking about becoming a missionary. I mean, it was unbelievable. So it was like, this is working, you know, like this, this is working. This being the week to week, like we're going to go through this in a long, yep. long form, yep. long format. Yeah. This is bearing fruit. Yep. I'd been witnessing, you know, giving out CDs and tracks and I mean like street witnessing and mm-hmm. hip hop witnessing and, and didn't see much fruit. Mm-hmm. I started seeing through fruit through these Bible studies efforts. Yeah. And I think that was God's way of, of pushing me towards starting a church. And so what I, what I kept hearing from these Acts 29 conferences, they were called boot camps, was my Bible study outgrew the room. And so we decided, well, let's start meeting for worship. And I was like, well, that's kind of what's happening to me. Mm. You know? And so the, people would say to me from my teaching, you're going to be a pastor. And I'd be like, nope, it's not what I want to do. Mm. I don't want to be a pastor. And the once I saw Epiphany, and once I saw what was happening in the Reformed world with hip hop, it was like you know what that wouldn't be that bad. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing fruit here. I'm seeing people's lives changed. I'm seeing uh, people come to Christ, and even other people wanting to now do what I'm doing. Like this isn't such a bad deal. Right. So my mind started to change, and I remember saying to Megan, we were in Olive Garden. It was 2010 or 11, maybe even nine. And I was, I said to her, like, you're not going to like this. 
we're married. We got married 2003, so we're married six, six years. years. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to like this, but God, I think, is calling me to be a pastor. <laughs> and she goes, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. We're not doing that. And I was like, I'm just telling you, I don't, I'm not saying to tomorrow or next week. I'm not changing anything, but I'm, I'm getting this sense. And we, so we began to explore this call. And then in 2000, I think 11 or 12, I think it was 12, we went and started a, an application with X29. And uh, after two years process, what we said was, and we kept getting, so here's a couple more interesting stories. Um, we were praying, God, if this is what you want, you have to, without a doubt, mm-hmm. confirm it to me and to Megan. Mm-hmm. And Eddie's in the picture at this time because he started coming to one of the Bible studies, the Wednesday night one, and he liked what was being taught. Mm -hmm. And he started coming then to Sunday morning. And I was already an elder at the time on an elder team at Penn Hills. Um, And so Eddie then quickly, you know, because of his character and because of his teaching quality and because he's such a nice guy, Mm. he became quickly a candidate for elder. So he got on the elder team. And, uh, and, and, and he and I were planning this church plant with Megan, uh, trying to like pray Megan into it. You know, that's kind of what the early days looked like. Yeah. We didn't tell anyone we weren't, we were like, let's be very quiet about this because we don't know what's going to happen. So Eddie and I would be praying on Tuesday nights. Every Tuesday we would pray maybe for an hour, two hours on the phone, just he and I. And, um, and, and I was praying specifically, you have to convince Megan that this is what you want. Mm-hmm. And you have to convince me so that I don't make a dumb decision here. Right. And, and crazy things started to happen. One of the, one of the most crazy things is, um, and this might have even been after fasting and praying, I get a letter, a handwritten letter in the mail from my pastor at the time. Only time I've ever gotten a letter from him and the only time since. And it read... I think you should go into full-time ministry. Hmm. And I, I remember opening it at the kitchen table, Megan sitting across, I was like, you're not going to believe this. She was like, what is it? And I let her read it. She was like shaking her head like unbelievable. Hmm. And things like that started to happen over and over where we weren't, we met with a friend. Because uh, you hadn't told anybody. So no, no one knew. No way of knowing. No one knew. Planning to plan a church. Yeah. No one knew. Hmm. So a friend, we met a friend that we hadn't seen in a couple of years. Him and his wife were at an Eaton Park. First thing he says when we sit down, I was like, hey, when are you starting your church? Mm. We were like, what? And Megan looks at me. She's like, did you tell him? I was like, he, I have not said a word. Yeah. So these types of things began to happen over and over and over. And I was praying for it. So because I was actively praying for it, when it happened, it wasn't like, oh, that's just, that's just coincidence. No, yeah. it was like, yeah. this is God moving this direction. Uh, so we said our Acts 29 assessment will be the final confirmation. If they give a thumbs up green light. We're going to do this. So we went through the whole written assessment that's online, phone assessment. I mean, it took me about a year because I wasn't, I didn't, I was working full time and yeah. I was teaching Bible studies and I was doing graffiti and yep. recording hip hop. Yep. So I, it was very slow. Yep. I didn't, I didn't take the, you know, some guys, they're already pastors, so they could spend eight hours a day just slamming the, right. I wasn't able to do that. Um, when I did my, in-person interview with Megan at the time they only did like a two or three person interview and it was two or three hours Mm. now it's like two or three days and you spend time with multiple teams of people it's much more thorough but at the time uh so after we got our interview uh, I was like so what do you guys think and they were like you should start the church now wow and I looked at Megan and she looked at me and it was I was like so green light they're like absolutely you should start right now 
This was gathering a core team. 2014, 2013? This was probably 2013. Okay. So from that moment, we gathered a core team and we started meeting on Sunday night for Bible study. And I was still pastoring at Penn Hills, still doing the Bible studies. And we gathered this small group and we were like, hey, keep it quiet for now, but this is what's going on. And so we just started to build into leaders. Then we told the leadership, developed a plan to make it public. And then once we were sent out, we kind of went public. And that was in 2014, July. Okay. Yeah. So they sent you out of Penn Hills. You have a core team. You start the church. How does, how are the, how's that first year versus what your expectations were? Cause oh, it sounds man. like up until this point, like things have been like storybook. You're getting letters from people that are mm-hmm. saying you should plant a church. Acts 29 gives you the full, you know, right hand of fellowship, if you will. Right. Like they bless you. And mm-hmm. it's like, you should do this now. How was the first year of, of Eternal City Church? It was, it was Eternal City Church from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. how did the first year go? We had our core commitments. Our, at the time, it was four. Mm-hmm. We had our core commitments <clears throat> from before assessment. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the things they asked in assessment. So what are you guys going to be about? Yeah. I remember laying out the four core commitments. I remember laying out strategies. Yeah. Um, so we took that core team of like six plus people, myself, okay. and maybe, maybe like eight with Eddie and I. Yeah. And then we went public. And then a lot of the people from the Bible studies showed up to my living room. Mm -hmm. And the first several months were great. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I I was leading what we called the GCC groups at the time. I was leading two a week. um, Training. So we were doing the Sunday night one and the Friday night one. I was leading the Friday night one, but training people how to do it. Uh, And then I launched into a Thursday night one. Um, and so here, here's what my week looked like, Justin. I was working 50 plus hours a week, mm. preaching every Sunday, mm. leading three groups a week, renewing a broken down building mm. here in Wilkinsburg, um, being dad because I have a, a little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was I doing? I was not doing hip hop anymore because okay. it was just too, too much, too much time, just yeah. too much. Um, and, 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 and not getting a dime for it. And that was kind of like one of my self-righteous badges for the first two years. It was like, I don't take a dime from the church, right. you know, right. It's foolish. Um, and, and then things started to fall apart. So first few months are great. Things start to fall apart. Yeah. And, and the way they started to fall apart was we started to have conflict between some of the groups in the church. Mm. And small church though. Six, yeah, man. Six families in my living room, you know, in my living room, uh, the Friday night group was like a whole different church than the Sunday night group. Mm. And there was a lot of conflict and we were told by Acts 29, like, don't be surprised if your whole core group leaves mm. and all your initial leadership leaves. Mm. It got to the point where it got so contentious that the whole core group left mm. literally everyone but Eddie. Wow. <laughs> and, and, uh, but at the same time we were getting all kind of new people. Okay. So but that original core group, man, yeah. I had poured into and mm-hmm. I had like trained and spent hours with and prayed with. And, and so it hurt, man. It wasn't like, well, yeah. good riddance. Like right. it, it really hurt. Those were friends. Those were like relationships I'd really invested in. That was the first hit was like, oh, they, they just, they're all leaving. Then the second really major hit was our building that we had spent thousands and thousands of dollars and I'm not joking, 
collectively hundreds and hundreds of man hours. Some of it's skilled labor, you know, which mm-hmm. would you'd have paid thirty, forty dollars an hour for. Mm-hmm. Um, it just nothing we did was successful, man. Mm-hmm. Like every attempt we made to remedy floods and mold and like all this stuff yeah. just failed. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember hiring an architect, Christian architect, but even the Christian architect giving us a deal was still four or five grand. Yeah. And after demolding the basement for five grand and paying seven grand for a plumber to put you know, get two sump pumps working out to the drain. I mean, all this stuff, dude. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm doing all this work myself with, with several other people, Tyree, Brett, mm-hmm. uh, Eddie, even we're, you know, we're putting on work gloves yeah. and we're coming down to the church. We're digging French drains. Yeah. You know, I'm like 12 feet down in a ditch, digging, preaching on Sundays, working full time. And when it just wouldn't work, man, it was, it, it was really, really, Devastating, and at the time, brother, I was so energized. I think I, I had all this like adrenaline, hmm. and once these crashes started happening, we're talking about two years in. I remember 2015. You know, we're probably a year and a half in. Just when we started meeting here at this building, okay. September of 2015. Yeah, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Hmm. And I remember having discussions with the leaders at the time, saying like, you know, you guys might have to take this over. I was just burnt, man. I was 100% burnt out. Yeah. And the money I was raising for the building, um, my, my, my coaches and actually now were like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you need to be, you need to spend your, your working hours on this church or it's never going to go anywhere. Mm. And I just had this naive, foolish idea that I could work full time, you know, 50 plus hours a week. Mm-hmm. I could work construction on the side. I could teach the Bible every week. I could counsel people. I could mm-hmm. do all this. I could do it all and be a family man, a husband and a father. Yeah. And I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was a very hard lesson, man. Like sleeplessness. I couldn't sleep. Wow. I couldn't. <clears throat> Even with all the work you were doing, you couldn't sleep. Bro, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I couldn't go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. I'd have dreams about the basement flooding and the, and the like, it was just yeah. terrible, dude. Yeah. It was just terrible. So I, I, I was so tempted to get out. And, and I remember going to a conference with Eddie in Philly. It was a frequency conference. It was Thrive Frequency mm-hmm. with Eric Mason, um, 2016. And I remember being on the phone trying to raise money for a part-time salary. Mm-hmm. I remember walking through the conference center at the time, talking to people. And, and I, was enough, I, I got enough money to raise a two day a week salary. Okay. And that really actually started to change things. Mm. I wish, I wish I would have went that route from the beginning, 2020 hindsight, but that started to change things. And then we got uh, more leaders and more people started to come. And, and so it began to get healthy after 2016, about October of 2016. Yeah. But man, I would say from July of 2014 for the first, maybe like six months, it was great high adrenaline everyone was excited and then things started to fall apart until probably October of 2016 November of 2016 but even at then that was the election time and there was so much controversy high profile shooting so there was all kind of there was people leaving the church over disagreements over cultural issues and Mm -hmm. political issues and Mm -hmm. so it wasn't smooth I'm not saying it was smooth but it began to get healthier. Even in the midst of all that cultural uproar, yeah. we began to get healthier. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
And then you came at what? 2017. Yeah. That was the summer. Yeah. yeah so when you came, we were just starting to, to, to see signs of going in the right direction, I would say. Mm. Um, and so with Acts 29, you, you are a candidate church. So you're in Acts 29, but you're not a full member of Acts 29 until you complete whatever conditions. Mm-hmm. The condition we could not meet was 40 committed people mm. because as soon as we would gather people, it just seemed like it, it really felt like Satan was utterly opposed to this church succeeding. Yeah. And I believe he was. Yeah. And we were told by our boot camps, by our training, you want to say, if you've never experienced satanic warfare, plan a church, watch mm. what happens. Mm. If you're not emotionally strong. So like part of the assessment is they assess your emotional stability. Mm. I had, they they said, you're one of the most emotionally healthy church planners we've ever assessed. Mm. Bro, I couldn't sleep. I was anxious. I was worried. Like, Mm. how do you go from getting that positive assessment to like. Almost throwing it out. Yeah, bro. Like I was just distraught. I mean, I, I had, I had, I think now what I would call a breakdown. I remember, um, we, we had conferences in our house at the time. We would video stream them in. We would show them in the living room. It's probably 2015, right around the time everything's crashing. Megan used to have these what were called if gatherings, IF, oh, if yeah, God women, is women's real. Gathering. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we were having one of these in the living room, and the, all the ladies were coming over that night. We had just got the house all set up, and I was going to be downstairs like writing or doing something on the computer. Meg, the, the baby was away at the time. Addie, she's probably four at the time, five at the time. And man, I, I remember them. She had it live streaming, and they were they were gearing up for the worship, so they were just practicing. But it was mm. being live streamed, and I remember the song "Lord, I Need You" came on, mm. and bro, I just broke down. I couldn't stop crying. Like mm. I, it wouldn't stop. Wow. And in my head, I'm I'm saying to myself while I'm uncontrollably like weeping, "What is going on?" Mm. You know, and then I, I started reading stories about that happening to people hmm. and they're like, that's called a nervous breakdown. Hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't know it, but here now looking back, I think I was just all adrenaline yeah. and it was go, 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 go. And then I was just, I was done. Hmm. I was exhausted, man. So that was just you kind of getting the, to the end of your emotional. That was a right around the same time where I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Yeah. Hmm. It was like, I, everything was crumbling, man. Even my well being, if you will. Yeah. Um, I remember this is so sad, but, but this just, this is a heads up for anyone who wants to plant a church. I remember Megan and I driving in our car and her looking at me and and saying, I understand how people could kill themselves. Hmm. The, the, the level of distress was that high. And I was like, yeah, we were both feeling the same exact thing. We weren't going to kill, kill ourselves. Right. But she said, I now understand. Yeah how people could. And I, I, I knew exactly what she meant because the thought was it'd be better to be dead than to feel like this all the time. Inescapable. Just, yeah. Just like it was a sense of doom and dread and everything's falling apart and it didn't go away. Hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I read stuff now and, and I remember reading an article from uh, Southwestern Midwestern seminary. Mm-hmm. And the title of the article was pastoral PTSD. I'm mm-hmm. like, hmm, that's interesting. And the guy told a story about he had so much trauma in his church that when he would get a text message, his heart rate would go up. And I was like, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. Mm. Every time I would get a text, I would be like, 
oh no, what's falling apart? Like literally every phone call. And if I would see someone from the church, I'd be like, my heart would start pounding. I'd be like, who's leaving? What's going wrong? Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. Everything was negative that had to do with the church, man. Mm. It was just, it was terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I read, I remember reading a book, listening to a book called Shifted by Wayne Cordero and three other pastors. And each of them experienced this kind of burnout. And, and not all of them were in terrible situations. One of them was in Hawaii, I think, and he was running and jogging. And he said, I just, I started crying and I couldn't stop. And I didn't understand why. And I didn't know what was going on. I had to go to the doctors. And, and, it, and I realized what happened. And to be honest with you, bro, I think since then I haven't quite been right. Hmm. Like, it's really hard for me to get really excited. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You almost, you're walking with a limp spiritually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would say so. And, um, you know, those really high highs that I used to get when I yeah. was younger, just not there. Hmm. Um, and, and maybe that has to happen, dude. Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not complaining. Yeah. I'm just telling you what happened. Um, but what that did for me was that allowed me to share a level of brokenness from experience. And when I did that from the pulpit and in counseling sessions, I saw people then being willing to be like, oh, okay, well... If you're going to say that, then here's what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. And so it was this open door for people to really be transparent. And one of the things we started to hear constantly was, this is like an authentic place. This is like a place where I don't feel like there's a a face mask, like a a facade happening here. It feels like this is genuine. That's the refrain we kept hearing. And I think it was because I was leading with brokenness. I was just saying like, look... I'm not well and I'm relying on God and here's how I'm getting through and I'm praying and I'm singing. And, and I think people were also feeling that too. Um, so yeah, now we're, you know, we're, we're six years in this coming July and I, and we're, we're at a level of health that I couldn't have even imagined. And we're not huge. We're not a huge church. We're a little church, but as far as the spiritual health goes and the level of spiritual leadership that we have and, the quality of membership that we have and even the maturity level of the people that we have. I'm, I'm, I'm just so thankful, man. And I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I do think that in God's strange providence, all those like setbacks and disappointments and injuries and failed plans and all that had to happen. Um, one for a level of humility, you know, like I, I said to people, many times over the years, I can't believe we're still, we're still going. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm just amazed sometimes yeah. that we're still going. I still get those. I was just telling you earlier that, you know, sometimes I still get those frightened feelings. Uh, you know, like with COVID, you know, you wonder, can the church survive this? Yeah. And the truth is we've survived way, way worse. Yeah. Hmm. That's good to think about. <laughs> yeah. So what, you mentioned you don't get super, super excited now, perhaps yeah. because you, you were really going through the ringer when this first started. Yeah. What gets you kind of excited about where we are right now? Yeah, man, that's a great question. So what I get excited about, I've always been a person that wants to see other people succeed yeah. and do well yeah. and and come up, yeah. if you will. Like. I, I really appreciate and love leadership development. Mm, okay. So I, I'm not threatened by if someone comes in and they show high leadership potential, I'm not like, oh snap, I better I better do something about this. Right. I'm like, yes, like I yeah. want you to exercise your gifts at your maturity level and yeah. let's see where you can 
serve and, and exercise your gifts here. That really gets me excited, man. And also to see, um, I love to see, I'm a unity kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So I really love to see when people get along in yeah. the gospel yeah. and it troubles my soul to see when Christians don't get along. It really mm-hmm. bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really excites me that like people could be going through opposite ends of a, of a spectrum on any issue, political, cultural, you know, social, and, and yet they're still together. Like that really excites me, man. And then thirdly, I would say that when I see the lost come to know Christ and begin to walk with him, that really, really excites me. Yeah. Mm. Those are the three things I would say that I get excited about Mm. leaders coming up unity, even in the midst of like what should divide people. Yeah. And then the lost coming to know Christ and seeing them begin to grow or people who have walked away from Christ coming back and then finding health and finding maturity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah that excites me. Mm. I like the, th- let's, let's keep three things. So okay. three most influential theologians in your, oh, man. in your journey, only three. Okay. We'll go in order of chronology. How about that? Okay. First one has to be John MacArthur, simply because that's the first guy that I got introduced to as a brand new Christian. Yeah. Uh, you know, brand new believer. I was given a study Bible, mm-hmm. the tapes, the white tapes. Man, I had I started to get them myself. I would couldn't download anything at the time, no yeah. apps. Yeah. So I would call Grace to you, pay money. Wow. That's for so tapes about, yeah. and tapes would come in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> CDs. Yeah. CDs. So I was spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, on CDs, TV, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I was, it's great. You know, I'm supporting a ministry. I'm learning. I'm growing. So I would say number one was John MacArthur. Those early years yeah. um, of just hearing the Bible opened up and verse by verse, sometimes yeah. four messages on one verse. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I want to do this. Yeah. I want to do this. So that's probably also why I started teaching the Bible was because I was like, I want to do what John does. Yeah. You know, he, he spends four weeks on Romans eight twenty eight. I want to spend four weeks on Romans eight twenty eight. So that's what I started to do. It took me ten years to get through Romans, man. Yeah. Week yeah. after week after week, ten years it took. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say number two, as far as influence goes, was probably John Piper, mm-hmm. and that's simply because. He was also in the mix of the hip hop guys that I was really, really encouraged by and running with. Um, and then I, I want to say, man, the third one would probably have to be Tim Keller. Mm. Because when Reason for God came out in 2008 and 2009, um, I, I, like I said, I heard about him through supremacy of Christ in a postmodern world. And I wasn't too impressed, Mm -hmm. but once I listened to, it was on audio, I listened to reason for God and I was already an apologetics guy. Yeah. It was like, it was like apologetics for today, 2008 that dropped 2009. It was all the stuff that all the culture was dealing with. So I was like, this is fantastic. And, uh, and so I started listening to Tim and reading his stuff more frequently after 2008 and and since then I've listened to and read tons and tons and tons of his stuff Mm -hmm. so there was other guys who were very influential but if you want to say like top three 
I would say at this point it's probably those three: John those MacArthur, three John Piper, and Tim Keller. How about top three top three books? Mm. Obviously not the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Not wow. obviously in the sense that we're discarding the Bible, but books about yeah, the man. Christian, or maybe not about the Christian. Like top three books, just top three books that have helped you grow. Man, because I'm thinking someone's listening to this, they're right. hearing your story, they're hearing how you know what's what 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 what, uh, what has helped you. So it is a Bible, but it's a study Bible. I would say that the John MacArthur Study Bible talk about was originally one of the most influential books. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just so I would spend hours just cross referencing. Yeah, I mean, it really, I learned how to study the Bible through that Bible. Mm-hmm. So you would have you know Romans eight verse twenty nine, and then on the notes you would have twenty cross references. Yeah. Yeah. So I would go to every cross reference. Mm-hmm. And, and I would be like, oh, this opens this up. And then under that text, you would have more. Cro- so I was jumping all over the Bible, cross-referencing hmm. and learning how the Bible interprets the Bible. Yeah, I want to open that up a bit, too, because I think, and maybe I'm wrong in this assumption, you didn't go to seminary, right? No, I did not. So people that hear you preach and talk would probably assume that you went to, you know, right down the road there. Perhaps. Yeah, at yeah. seminary, but you didn't. Pittsburgh Theological, no, I didn't. Is that how you got your theological acumen, just reading something like a John MacArthur Study Bible, cross-referencing? So I would say my biblical depth came from teaching the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's there's study and having to write about what you study mm-hmm. from a book and from a... And then there's when you teach, you have to know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I was teaching sometimes three, four times a week, mm. consistently every week. When you do that over and over and over again, you get to know the Bible well. Yeah. You know? And, and I was listening to lectures constantly, man. Like yeah. my, my work afforded me to constantly be... Li- so I probably have a doctorate as far as hours go or more right. in my in my listening to lectures seminary lectures and audio books yes. and yeah. Yeah. and I'm still listening I was just listening to uh, Mike Cosper's the stories we tell right before he came mm. just today I got through four or so chapters mm. um, preparing for a future podcast um, so like I'm still always listening, listening. man yeah. you know if I'm driving I'm listening if I'm doing dishes I'm listening if I'm doing yard work I'm listening if I'm working and my job allows me to like you know do something monotonous where I don't have to think about it. I listen. Mm-hmm. So that's been the practice since I was a brand new Christian. Yep. Um, but learning how to study the Bible to teach it, I think was how you, yeah. yeah. Most people are shocked. They're like, where'd you go to school? I was like, I didn't. They're like, right. what? Right. right. And then I'm like, Hey, Spurgeon didn't go to seminary. The apostles never went to seminary. So Jesus himself was accused of not being, yep. uh, where did this man get these yep. teachings without having studied letters? Um, and some of your greatest theologians have not been to seminary. However, once I go full time, I, I would like to do some seminary. Nice. <laughs> nice. So the number one book, brother, I would have to say John in my experience, because it was the first one I got. Yeah. And, and I was just in it constantly. Yeah. Second book, man, that was influential as far as cr- chronologically, um, It would probably have to be Willing to Believe by R.C. Sproul. What that book is about is it, chron- it, 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 it chronicles from the Reformation moving forward what the heck is free will mm. and how do we explain 
conversion from a God's sovereignty, human responsibility point of view. Mm, Okay. So I must have listened to that book and read it. I mean, I, I remember writing in the book notes and like trying to understand where these theologians are coming from and where is Sproul coming from. And that was highly influential, man. Mm. Uh, and what I landed on from, from listening, reading that book, I didn't listen to it, I read it, and hearing Sproul talk about this, this was like one of his continuous teachings. He also wrote a book that I almost finished, I need to finish it, called The Invisible Hand of God, mm. where he deals with the same kind of thing, God's providence and invisible control of all things. He's a bunch of Pittsburgh stories in it too, because you know he went to seminary here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Ligonier is, you know, close to Pittsburgh. It's yeah. not. But he was in Pittsburgh mm. at uh, PTS. Mm. Not our PTS, yeah. the liberal one. But John Gershner and Tim Keller went to PTS, PTS too. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, that book taught me that people will not come to God because they don't want to come to God. There's where your free will comes in. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm simplifying it, but it's basically like, I don't want to come to God. Therefore, God says, okay, we need God to give us a willingness to come to him. And the way free will works is if he gives you your will, what we call free will, you'll never come to him. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you don't want to. You love the darkness more than the light and you will not come to the light for fear your deeds will be exposed. John three nineteen and 20. That made so much sense to me. That kind of like, there's still mystery there, mm-hmm. but that made so much sense to me that God doesn't violate our free will except that he makes us willing. And the willingness comes through being born again and that Holy Spirit making spiritual life occur, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 4, and well, actually 1 into 5. That occurrence of regeneration or being born again is what makes us want than to come to him. Yeah. But unless we're born again or regenerate, we, we don't want to come. That's what spiritual death means. If you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you love the darkness. And that was my experience, brother. Right. Like I loved the darkness. I understand John three nineteen experientially. Mm-hmm. And I also understand something radical happened to me. Run 99. That I, I began to hate what I once loved. Yeah. And I don't know how to explain that yeah. other than I was born again and my affections and desires slowly changed. And I wanted to follow God. And I didn't want to go down the path that displeased him. And it wasn't out of legalism. Mm-hmm. It was really like I loved Ghostface Killer. And now I can't even listen to this. Yep. Yeah. What happened to me? Yeah. I was born again. So willing to believe was really helpful for me as a newer Christian to grasp what is going on with this God's sovereignty and human responsibility and free will. And, and it's... It's semi-complex, so yeah. I would I would want everyone to read it who listens to this. I would say buy it, work through it very slowly, um, but you should work through it. Now it's on audio, so you can listen to it. But uh, he does such a good job of making a very complex theological doctrine or truth very accessible, mm. willing to believe. Third one. Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with probably Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Mm. And the reason that was so influential to me was because 
as I was also going through the the pages, you know, that big blue book. Big blue, blue. Yeah, I was saying. It's huge. I see it right now in my mind. Yeah, it's huge. As I was also going through, and, and you know, Grudem is very, very rooted in the text. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't just share opinions. He roots everything he says in the text, and he has several references under every theological point he makes. Yeah. And I so appreciated that about Grudem. Well, at the same time, I was listening to the audio lectures. Mm. You know, you can, yeah, you can on the Apple podcast, podcast yeah. you can listen to him talk about the systematic theology. So he spends 10 weeks on, on interpreting the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and just crazy. And then, you know, if I had to add a fourth, it would probably be... Um, man, I... I, I I'll just say this, you know, even though Mark Driscoll is now very mm-hmm. controversial at the time when I was reading his stuff, I read his first three or four books in succession, Reformations, Rev, um, Vintage Jesus, Vintage Church. Mm-hmm. He came out with four little books on church leadership, Old Testament, um, New Testament, and I can't remember the four, it was church leadership or like what is the church or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the, his books on those front years of Acts 29 um, were really influential. And being that I was using his stuff yeah. to reach out to others, his book. So, you know, if you want to give it a read, it's worth reading. Vintage Church is a really good theology of church. Mm. It really is. Mm. Um, and it gave me a love and an appreciation for God's church mm-hmm. that I did not have before mm-hmm. reading that book. So a lot of Driscoll's books early on, say like 2008 into maybe like 11, 12, were really influential. I was reading all his stuff, yeah. which is also the, the direction I was moving as far as a camp goes. Because he was still the president right. of Acts 29. He was leading it. You know, Then he passed the presidency off to... Um, Derek Thomas, and then from Derek Thomas to Matt Chandler, mm-hmm. and then he got in trouble, mm-hmm. big trouble. Yeah, as I say, I mean, perhaps it'd be helpful to walk people through your thought process there. Mark Driscoll, un- unfortunately, you know, got in big trouble, as you would say, and yet you still find his content helpful. So, yeah. how do you pastor people through thinking through that, right? Because yeah. he's someone whose behavior perhaps you wouldn't want people to emulate. Not at all. Um, but he said some things that you found helpful. Oh, so yeah. How do you process that? So, seeing kind of where his Things have gone since. It's then. a great question. Um, the 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 way I would coach people through that is on the front end. He would say in conferences all the time, "Look, I was 25 when I started Mars Hill. I was never a member of a church before, mm-hmm. and I started my own church." He's like, "It was a terrible idea." Yeah, that was the things I kept hearing from Driscoll continuously. Confessions of a, and he had one book before that the cover was orange, and and it, I think it was his very first book that he ever wrote. I remember he kept telling stories about bars turning into churches and strip clubs turning into churches, and I was like, "This is what I'm doing." You know, I remember it being very highly influential, yeah. but I can't even remember the name now. I just remember the flavor of it. Yeah. Um, and then confessions of a Ref- reformation's rep. He told his story and he confessed. It was called confessions. All the bad. Mm. And it was like, it was, it was bad, <laughs> but he put it out there. Abusive leadership or not so much that at the, yes, that, that too, just all the mistakes that he had made up until okay. that point. Um, and, and 
the people that he was reaching though, and the level, you know, he went, I think he, he went to 800 people in a matter of, of a couple months. Mm. Once the church gained a level of health, mm-hmm. first couple years were crazy. And then once they gained a level of health, they just boom. And then from 800, they went to thousands, to thousands, to yeah. thousands. Yeah. You know, at one time with all their campuses, they were probably, I don't know, 12, 15,000 people. Yeah. Big church. It's a huge church. Yeah. Um, so I kept hearing Mark talk about his failures over and over and over again. What got him in trouble were the very things that he had already told everybody about. Mm. So I remember when all the stuff went down, you know, and this was the beginning of what we would call cancel culture now. Mm. When everyone started to kind of gang up on him, I remember him saying, like, look, these accusations are the things I've publicly confessed. And I, I think he was right to a degree, but then hearing from others, uh, even 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 Paul Tripp, you know, would, was counseling Driscoll, and he was mm-hmm. like, "Look, you need to get godly older men to speak into your life and to guide you and direct you. You need this." Mm-hmm. Um, once Acts twenty nine let Mars Hill go, like they were like, "We can't associate with you anymore." It wasn't long after that before his own church elders said, we need to do an internal investigation because the accusations just keep coming and keep coming. I mean, there were websites that were calling right. for his right. his removal from ministry. Even John MacArthur started writing stuff against Mark Driscoll mm-hmm. continuously. <laughs> so everybody started to get on Driscoll. Now, you know, he's a pastoring again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ, I think it's called the Trinity, Trinity Church in mm-hmm. Phoenix or something, close to Phoenix. Um, I... I would say that you can have good theology mm-hmm. and you can have a level of understanding about the Bible and still be in the sanctification process. However, when you step into leadership, your lifestyle is now under scrutiny and for good reason. So the Bible does make a lot of qualifications on public leaders, especially pastors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sadly, he, he, he matured in ministry. And so all that stuff that he said publicly was all recorded. And his growth, you can chronicle the growth, mm-hmm. but it was, it was just too much. And so he got mature and it was too late. Mm-hmm. And I think the final humbling was when he got removed from his own church. Yeah. You know, and if you hear some of those interviews right before he started his new church, I mean, he's just like a broken dude. Yeah. Just broken. Yeah. Um, so I, the, the theology in Vintage Church was, was really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. I think it was a good understanding of what the church is. And um, I thought it was really helpful in, in giving me a love for the church. Vintage Jesus was, it was at points controversial, but it was helping me to reach the people yeah. that I was trying to reach. Yeah. It yeah. was in a sense raw, but the people I were, was reaching, was, they were really raw. Right. Um, and... So anyway, I would say people like him, I don't endorse their old style of leadership, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't recommend their books to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, in, in being honest with your, with your question there, his books were highly influential to me at the time. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, you could read them if you're, if you're able to say, okay, this guy who wrote this also is a broken sinner mm-hmm. who had to go through a lot of public 
repentance. Yeah. <laughs> and you can read it with that in your mind. You could still read them. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for people to read something and then read about the person. Yeah. And then how do I reconcile these things yeah. here? You know, the way I reconcile it is, and I don't, you know, I, I haven't read his latest book. I don't know. He's put out one on the Holy spirit recently mm-hmm. and he probably put out some more. I haven't read them, but, um, I think that the way that can happen is you can have the theology and you can have the right ideas and the right direction and you can preach it, but your spiritual maturity is not where your understanding and your preaching level is. And that's very gifted. Yeah. Very gifted. gifted. His gifts far exceeded his maturity level. Mm -hmm. And I think he would say that. Yeah. Yeah. He did say that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So I would say, you know, if someone's listening to this, and they want to read Vintage Church. Um, it, it's got a lot of good content. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't like... I, I'm not going to quote it in a right. sermon. Right. Because I, I'm wise enough to say... Someone's going to be like, wait, Mark Driscoll? You know, especially in Acts 29. Sure. Uh, it's probably unwise to... <laughs> but I think I need to be honest with my story in that early those early days, his the way he would kind of yell at dudes, like he, he was really harsh with guys really helped me because I was neglecting my wife and my family for Mm. the sake of ministry. Mm. And I was totally blind to it Mm. because in my mind, it was like the kingdom of God and, and lost souls. And what more could we be doing? Is that whole, like, don't waste your life on steroids attitude. Yeah. You know, at the time, Piper and, and Driscoll were doing conferences together, and Keller and, and uh, Driscoll. So everyone was in the mix. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there was no divi- there was no division yet. You know, city to city was partnering with Acts Twenty Nine, and, mm-hmm. and everyone was kind of together. Um, well, Driscoll started like hammering guys who were applying to Acts Twenty Nine, and and one of the things this was right around the time he wrote his marriage book, which I also thought at the time was really helpful. It's called Real Marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I was using that for counseling when I was at Penn Hills. I was using the book. You know, I thought it was really helpful. Um, the way that he said to guys, like, look, if you're neglecting your wife for the sake of ministry, get out of ministry. Like, he was just very blunt, very yeah. hardcore. And it woke me up to the fact that God, that I was neglecting Megan and my daughter for the sake of ministry. So I pulled out of a lot of stuff, man. Mm. Like, I, I, I stopped writing graffiti. Um, I, I kind of cut out all hobbies yeah. and I was home a lot more. And Megan will say, if she's honest, if I wouldn't have encountered those teachings from Driscoll, we may not be together. We don't know that for sure. Yeah. So Driscoll had a huge yeah, impact on my life. Impact, yeah. And so I'm not going to defend him because he had a huge impact, but I'll be honest and say he did like yeah. his ministry had a huge impact for the good on my life. Mm. So God can use cro- crooked, crooked sticks, sticks, man. Yeah. He really can. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'm trying to think of a lighter note now. <laughs> two. How about, how about one, more, one more top three? All right. Um, you've been in Pittsburgh all your life. Top three Pittsburgh restaurants. Oh, man. Are we talking Pittsburgh or are we talking like exclusive to Pittsburgh? Doesn't have to be exclusive. So let's see the, the, the family. It, it's a Friday night. They're like, Dad, we want to mm. go. We want to go. What are your top three places you're you're going to? Chick Fil A, man. <laughs> no, it's I do love Chick Fil A. Um, 
we'll, we'll just we'll go Pittsburgh yeah, on Pittsburgh. two of them. Okay. So I like Permani Brothers. People yeah. either love it or hate it. They're yeah. like, oh, it's too greasy. They put fries in the sandwich, coleslaw on a sandwich. I like it, man. Okay. I'll go to Permani's. I'll still eat it. I've been eating it for years. Breakfast, Pamela's. Pamela's is yeah. so good. Yeah. You and I ate we there. We ate there, yeah. That yeah. was our first meeting. Yeah. That was. In Squirrel Hill. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And remember that mentally disturbed brother yes. sat next to us yeah. and we prayed with him outside? Yeah, yeah. Nathaniel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you remember his name? I'm pretty sure that is Nathaniel. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Pamela's pancakes. Uh, and then, man, I, I cannot do this because I, I don't have the resources to take the family here. However, uh, I've gotten gift cards to go to the Capitol Grill, and I know oh, that's Capitol not exclusive Grill. to Pittsburgh. Yeah, no, yeah, I've been there. But yeah. brother, it is. We had aged steak, mm-hmm. and mine had espresso rub on it. Mm-hmm. Megan and I've been there twice on 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 dates. Uh, pff, man, this is the best the best steak I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Yep. Yep. If yep. you're listening, Capital Grill gift cards. Oh man, take care. Of your <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And then someone actually did give me. I'll, I'll add a fourth. Someone gave me a gift card for for two hundred dollars to Eddie V's. Oh yeah, downtown. Oh man. Yep. Yep. <sighs> Bro, crazy, crazy mm. good. Mm. Um, but again, a little, a little on the high end, sure. you know. So. I wouldn't take the family there, right. but bro, fire. Yeah, we go to Pamela's as a family. They love it. Kids love it. Yeah. Um, and then being that I have a two-year-old and two eight-year-olds, man, we go to Chick-fil-A and it's a safe place to eat because right. yeah. if the nuggets go flying and, yeah. the, and the fruit goes flying, everyone else also has little three-year-olds around and it's safe. It's a yeah. safe place to eat. Yeah. So for now, until the kids mature a little bit, we're kind of, we're stuck to those like eating park-ish. And yeah. If Megan and I get date night though, we... We will go out. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So, yeah, man, you got to try Permanis. Yep. Uh, at least give it a try. Got to try Pamela's for mm-hmm. sure for breakfast, and you got to get the crepes. And I highly recommend the strawberry, blueberry, or banana crepes because they're fire. You okay. like them? I don't think I've had the crepes. I had the pancakes. I love the pancakes. Oh, man, the crepes. So they put sour cream and strawberries, mm. brown sugar, mm. and then on top of them, after they're all rolled up, they put like whipped cream on it. Oh man, mm. you don't need syrup, yeah. so good. And the one down in the Strip District is really good. It's always packed though, they're all yeah. good. I yeah. mean, yeah. the one we had at Squirrel Hill is good too, but yeah. I think that's the original one, I think. The Strip, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. could be wrong. But yeah, there's, there's my recommendations. There we go. Yeah, and then there's a spot in Oakmont by my house called Berkey's Ice Cream that oh. the kids and I love to go to. Mm-hmm. And it's handmade ice cream. And if you're an ice cream, they stay open ice cream. January, oh, wow. February. I remember meeting the owner and being like, well, you're open in February. Who comes and gets ice cream when it's below zero? He's like, people that love ice cream. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. They, they still come in nice. the middle of the winter. It's that good. Nice. Makes it all in-house. That's fire. Berkey's. Burkies. Yeah. I love ice cream, so I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, man. It's fire. And then if you're, we'll just go on and on. If you like barbecue, Pittsburgh barbecue is absolutely oh, yeah. fire. We, we had got that it. catered for yeah, the, man. yep, yep, yep. That was good. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's one out way out east in Delmont. Not way out. It's out east in Delmont. And then there's one down in Banksville uh, by the city as well. Mm. So you can go either way. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of barbecue spots in Pittsburgh, but I like that one in particular. Yeah, yeah that was good at the five-year anniversary. Yeah, man. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So there you go. Cool. Anything else you want to tell the people while we're on? Wow. Um, <clears throat> please, if you're not a part of Eternal City Church, we would love, uh, if you don't already have a church home that you're committed to, come and see us, come visit. 
even in this COVID season, we're still meeting. We got masks on. It's safe. Come see us. Come experience the church and experience the people. We uh, we love people, and we would love to love you too. Cool. All right. Thanks, brother. Love you guys. Love see you. See you.